Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact regarding our last episode discussing the future of local media and public service broadcasting. You can listen back to our podcast on Newstalk.com or on iTunes. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at Newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be discussing the calls for mandatory vaccinations and all of the issues involved. We have a three-part panel over the course of the programme. We'll be joined by some of our guests in a few moments' time. But first, we're joined by broadcaster and also Dr. Kira Kelly. My thanks, Kira, to you for joining us today. Thanks, Andrea. Um, a new UN report says the number of Irish measles cases has actually jumped by over 240% from uh, 25 back in 2017 to 86 last year. So far this year in Ireland, there have been 48 cases of measles, which of course is a highly contagious disease. The Health Minister is now seeking advice, Kira, from the Attorney General on whether it's possible to make it mandatory for kids to be vaccinated if they're to attend public schools and creches. Just, we're talking to you in a kind of a twofold perspective today. You're somebody that's campaigning for kids to be vaccinated and you're obviously a medical professional yourself. But just bring us back a little bit to really when this kind of whole campaign actually kicked off. I suppose there's been an issue around the MMR since the year 2000. And that uh, was the time when uh, a now struck off Andrew Wakefield, who had been a doctor, is no longer a doctor, um, launched uh, a piece of research into The Lancet that in it associated the MMR vaccine wrongly with autism. And that created a scaremongering phenomenon around the MMR vaccine, which we're still seeing to a certain extent the ramifications of today, nearly 20 years later. Um, When I say wrongly, I, I think I have to tee this off from the very beginning by being extremely clear. There is no link, no association, no causal relationship whatsoever between the MMR vaccine and autism. But that is not what Andrew Wakefield's study showed. But it is important maybe just to say a couple of things about a study. Andrew Wakefield, that study was funded by an anti-vaccination group called JABS. Um, Andrew Wakefield was struck off because it was found subsequently that he had patents out on single dose vaccines himself so in other words to give a measles vaccine and a mumps vaccine and a rubella vaccine separately so he was going to make a lot of money off this and he was also patenting a test that apparently you were going to be able to do absolute rubbish to um, identify whether or not your child would be at risk of autism should they get this vaccine so he was up to his neck in financial dealings in this whole area and indeed Um, Many people believe not only should he have been struck off, but that there should have been an actual prosecution of him too, because this was a whole area um, of of medicine that has muddied the water, as I say, for two decades for people around the MMR. But parking all of that, right, the MMR is a safe vaccine, okay? It is a vaccine that protects against measles, mumps and rubella. But if we're looking specifically at measles, measles is a very, very contagious vaccine disease and Andrea it's very contagious to the extent that if we were in a room now and we were non-immune either of us I am immune to measles because I've had the measles but if we were in immune now in a room now you and I and a hundred other people and one person in that room just in the room you don't have to be kissing them or touching them or anything to do with them they were in the room with you and they had measles and you were non-immune 80 to 90 percent of the people in the room would contract measles it's highly virulent. It's an aggressive disease. And And why all of a sudden have we had such a rise in cases? Well, in some ways, 
the MMR is a victim of its own success. Because I should point out that the rise in cases is absolutely linked to low vaccination rates. Anywhere you see low vaccination rates, you see the measles break out because it's a very aggressive and contagious disease. So low vaccination rates are what causes this. And in some ways, the MMR is a victim of its own success because honestly, parents have forgotten how bad it was to contract measles. So you have... People, people, the likes of uh, of, of uh, Kennedy over in, in the states from from the Kennedy uh, political dynasty, saying, "Well, you know, measles is not a big deal. Get the measles, don't get the vaccine. No, do not get the measles because uh, two to three children in every thousand who get the measles." will die. We've always had a fairly high uh, vaccination rate here in Ireland in terms of compliance with it or people actually going to get it. I think in 2017 some of the figures were probably at around 92%. Up from uh, the high 80s back in in the previous decade. But those vaccination rates have dropped off now slightly in more recent years. Yeah. Um, And 92 sounds kind of good and sounds kind of okay but because measles is so virulent and contagious to confer a degree of herd immunity on us as a population, we really do need to hit 95 and excess. So 92 isn't good enough. So it isn't good enough that, look, 92 out of 100 kids get it, but eight don't. You need to get over the 95, 96, or you will see outbreaks of measles. A lot of people who are campaigning against the idea of mandatory vaccinations, um, and I suppose this has really come to the fore, particularly in recent weeks, because the health minister is looking for advice from the Attorney General about making kids who if you're not don't have a vaccine you're not going to be able to go to public school he's looking into that or wants the Attorney General to look into it but people who are concerned about Akira will cite things like you know religious beliefs and they believe that the fact that the disease has pretty much disappeared in Western countries in more recent years that there's now really no need to get the vaccination that perhaps the risks outweigh the benefits a lot of people will say this is all kind of misinformation when did this misinformation campaign as you call it step up again? I think there has been an anti-vaccine movement for a very long time. My whole time in practice, as a, and I was a, a, a practicing doctor for 20 years full time, um, there has always been an anti-vaccine movement. And I, I think I had my first on-air debate on the, the MMR vaccine it was back in, in the, the mid-noughties. And I was on uh, a TV programme debating it back then. So this has been around a very mm. long time. Um I, for one, don't buy the religious thing at all because I can't think of any religious teaching that specifies that the MMR is bad for your child. I know there are religious teachers like Jehovah's Witnesses and transfusions and things, but there is no religion and vaccine link at all. And and people who are using that are literally using it for their own ends. Um, Are we seeing that it's, it's going? No, we're actually seeing it on the rise. Globally, cases of measles are on the rise around the world. And one of the difficulties I have to say that we have here in Ireland is in other countries, in developing countries, the difficulty they have is, is they don't can't neither afford or, or get the vaccine. So 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 for families in 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 uh, third world countries and developing countries, getting the vaccine is a difficulty, and that's why they're having the outbreaks because they can't afford it. But we're a first world country with a free vaccination program available. We can get it here. It is people choosing not to vaccinate their children that is the problem. And some of them will say they have concerns about it, you know, being allergic to it and risks outweighing the benefits and they'll cite things like, you know, interest from pharmaceutical companies and people that are opposed to it and have concerns about it have, I suppose, as lengthy a list of reasons for not getting it as you would have. I, I, I'm, I'm shaking my head here in studio. You can't see me. I'm shaking my head and kind of going, yes, I, I've heard all the conspiracy theories about big pharma and all of those things. At the end of the day, here are the facts. The fact is, is, is that as compared to having the measles, getting the vaccine is safe. So I'm not suggesting for a moment you couldn't have like a little bit of a temperature after the mm. vaccine or those types of things. People do react to vaccines the same way as some people react to all drugs. So safety doesn't mean that there's no question of any kind of side effect or reaction. But on balance, all 
all, all the science supports okay. vaccination. Let me ask you about this call from Simon Harris recently. First of all, the health minister, he wants all of the political representatives on all sides of the house to lay their cards on the table and to to outline whether or not they are in support of mandatory vaccination for kids. What's your view on that? I actually think this is a very interesting development and I'm quite pleased because we have had pot shots being fired from the Oireachtas against vaccines in the past. Not just the MMR, but the HPV, I'm thinking most significantly. And I actually can think of, of both senators and TDs who took pot shots at it. Um, and the difficulty I have with that is, first of all, when you hear them talking, particularly if you're a medical profession, you know instantly that they don't know what they're talking about because what they're saying is either false or slightly twisted or it's those types of things. And you're kind of go, God, they really don't know what they're talking about. But the problem is, is when they put out that kind of misinformation and they are in a position of power or authority or people might maybe think a little bit of gravitas you sway people's views and you sway people's views against protecting their children from life threatening diseases there is no argument on the other side of this that the jury is not out we're not still scratching our heads wondering if the MMR is safe or wondering if the MMR causes autism we know the MMR is safe we know the MMR does not cause autism but we know that measles will kill children okay. and has killed children and will kill more children if somebody doesn't step in and do something and there are children the really important last thing Andrea is, is there are certain children we can't vaccinate you, you don't vaccinate That's the, un- the, other point, the yeah. under ones so if you've got an eighth month old and, and they're in a creche they can't be vaccinated and you bring in a toddler who has measles and I t- said it to you 80 to 90% of the people in the same room as them will get mm. it then you have all these babies with measles and they're the most likely to die because their immune systems are not well developed Do you think it's a good idea to put pressure on the politicians to be forced to have to yes I'm a fan no I'm not a fan yeah well you know what I'd like to know I'd like to know where politicians yeah, okay. stand because I certainly wouldn't be voting for somebody who, who was anti-vaccine the idea of the Attorney General Seamus Wolf, he's now examining that's something we're going to be looking at the legal aspects to all of this in a few moments time but the possibility of making uh, mandatory vaccination now compulsory for kids if they want to attend schools and crash I take it you think it's a good thing I certainly think we need to have a debate about it. I, I kind of do believe in the rule of democracy, so I'm kind of open to, to our society deciding on that one. I don't even mean by referendum, but just, you know, even a, a, a dull debate on it, those types of things. But I think the debate needs to be had. There are 11 countries in Europe that have mandatory vaccinations. The US in many states now has brought in mandatory vaccinations for school attending children because of the outbreaks of measles that are occurring there that they're not able to control. In Australia, they have gone further again. They have a, a no jab, no pay system that they're bringing in in order to link things like child benefits to, to vaccinating your children. Mm. There's more than just individual okay. things. We're looking at the common good. In a contagious disease situation, quarantine, vaccination, all of those things are part of what we do to protect people. Broadcaster and Dr. Kira Kelly, my thanks to you for joining us here on Between the Lines. Um, we will be back in just a few moments' time. Between the Lines on News Talk. Will you welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today we're discussing the calls for mandatory vaccinations and the issues involved. My next guest is the Assistant Professor of Law at Trinity College Dublin, David Kenny. David, thanks for joining us. Hi. Um, David, this UN report that warned the number of measles cases in Ireland has now increased more than threefold. Also, millions of children worldwide are now missing out on the measles vaccination. And as a result of this, the health minister here, Simon Harris, has now sought the advice of the Attorney General on whether or not it's possible to make it mandatory for kids to be vaccinated if they attend the likes of schools or creches or any kind of public place. You're a legal expert in this area. Just what's your view on this? 
Yeah, it's a complicated question because there are potentially constitutional objections you can raise to compulsory vaccinations, which, as you say, is becoming more common in many European countries. Um, The objections would stem from the fact that parents have rights in respect of children, that essentially parents are presumed to know what's in the best interests of their children in many respects, and that essentially parental autonomy and decision making around what's best for children is given a lot of weight in our constitutional system. There's also a, a right to primary education for children to attend school. And so if the, the vaccination system was tied in to school attendance, there's a risk that education rights might be being Uh, infringed as well by a compulsory vaccination scheme. At the same time, it's far from certain that any kind of compulsory vaccination scheme would be unconstitutional. There are some cases in the Supreme Court's past that might suggest it could be, but there are very compelling arguments specifically related to the vaccination issue Mm. that might outweigh those concerns and mean that it is constitutional to introduce this scheme because the past cases that have dealt with this are not exactly the same as the current issue we're facing. So as the law, as the constitution, I suppose, stands today, how would this idea of perhaps making it compulsory for kids that are going to school to be vaccinated, how would this slot into our current constitution? Yeah, so you'd have to look at whether or not in trying to take away parental decision making, you have maybe disproportionately or unduly infringed the rights of parents to decide that it is in the best interest of their child not to to take this vaccination. That would be the argument. Or that by insisting that it's necessary for school attendance, you've infringed to too great a degree the right of, of children to attend state primary schools. And those arguments has some force because of a, a very famous case in the 2000s, sort of the, the, known as the heel prick test case. And this was about a, a PKU test, a, a small prick in a child's heel, where blood would be drawn in order to test for very serious conditions that might cause brain damage. Now, the risk of any individual child having this condition was quite small, but also the invasiveness of the test was very small. All that has to happen is that the the heel of the child is pricked briefly and and blood is taken. The parents objected and the uh, health services tried to essentially force the parents to to, uh, have the test done and they went to court. And the Supreme Court said that in that instance you couldn't force the parents to uh, undergo uh, that procedure, to have the child undergo that procedure because they had made a determination in good faith. It might have been mistaken, it might have been based Mm. on on unusual views, but that was their view. The risk to the child was really quite small in context and so as a result they had the right to object to that. So that's the case you would sort of use to try and suggest that compulsory vaccine vaccination would be unconstitutional. Now, the other side of that is that there would be differences in this case. In that uh, instance, the PKU test, there was no law saying it had to happen. This was just doctors in the health service saying to the parents, you need to do this. It's a very different thing if the Oireachtas, which has a special power to make laws and decide social policy, if it decides really that this is essential, that would be very different. And the court stressed in the other case that the lack of legislation was a big factor. And what you also have here, which you didn't have in those past cases, is the argument from herd immunity, the idea that really what we need for vaccinations is for, uh, you know, almost everyone to have them in order to get the benefit from that, where unvaccinated children who are too young to get the vaccine can benefit from the fact that the disease can't really take hold. So essentially, if 
you make that argument, you're saying this isn't just about one parent and one child and, and the, the decision that they might make in respect of vaccination. This is about the whole community and the fact that this decision has ripple effects for the common good for all of us together. Those arguments might mean that a different result would come out in a compulsory vaccinations case rather than in the PKU test case that we had before. Okay, so as things stand, I suppose, in kind of layman's terms for people listening to David today, the parents obviously have the autonomy or the right to make the decisions as they see it Mm -hmm. in their kids' best interest. And because we don't legislate at the moment to say in our laws, our laws state that you have to have your kid vaccinated, Mm -hmm. then my reading of this is that basically this this is open to challenge in court as it stands right now. Uh, if if a law were passed to require, well, I suppose we don't have yeah, at it, the moment it, in the absence of the, yes. the the legislation for this. In the absence of legislation, there's absolutely no requirement that people, you know, vaccinate their children, and and without a law, there's really no way of suggesting that they do. The interesting question is really if we did pass a law, and I suppose that's what Simon Harris will be asking the Attorney General, if we do pass a law, does the Attorney General believe that that law will be constitutional? And the Attorney General in making that determination will be looking at this past case law, will be weighing up these different rights and seeing is there something in the vaccinations issue that means there's really a compelling state interest in having this done. And if they pass that law, I think it possibly would be subject to court challenge, but I think there is a very good chance it would be upheld as constitutional, perhaps unlike some previous cases that we had in this area. The fact that I suppose this isn't just a parent making a decision about their own child and their child's health and welfare. This child is obviously going to school with other kids. How does that come into the argument in terms of if I decide I don't want to vaccinate my mm. child, but you and the other 30 parents in the class do? Yeah. Can, could they potentially take a case then against me if something happens there? I'm just trying yeah. to, you know, look at the all aspects of it. Yeah. So there's very, very little law that would be on the side of, let's say, the group of parents looking to, you know, protect their own children against, you know, the, the risks of, say, unvaccinated children in a class. What has to happen for those people is the legislature has to act. And that's why the legislature would be passing a law, would be to try and defend the rights of that big group of people over the rights of a small group of people that might want to make a decision that harms them. And if that happens, and what the courts often say is that because the legislature is trying to defend the rights of everyone, because they're acting in the interests of the general good, because they're trying to defend the rights of all groups of people, that that will be weighed up against the infringement of uh, the small uh, group of people that might want to defend their autonomy rights or protect their children from what they see as harm. The courts will balance those two. And if they think that the common good is significant enough, that there is enough benefit here, that it outweighs the parental autonomy rights or the, the, the rights of parents to decide what's best for their children, then that is something that the courts will say is legitimate to do, that you can defend the rights of the many over the rights of the few. And something that's interesting in this context is that uh, a few years ago, we voted for a children's rights mm, amendment, yeah. uh, Article 42A of the Constitution, which hasn't really been used very much, but does sort of put the constitutional emphasis much more on the best interest of the child, perhaps, than on the rights of the parents. The previous constitutional language was much more parent focused. So it could be that if this case came up, that new article that we inserted back in 2012 could be used to say, really, we need to focus more on what we determine is the best interest of the child, not on what the parents alone think is the best interest of the child. 
That's not clear. We haven't had much case law on mm. that yet, but we could see that coming out if this becomes a, a major issue. You talked about the lack of legislation. I suppose there's a couple of different pillars in all of this, the parental autonomy, mm. the, the, the current lack of legislation in the area, and then the right to access to education as well, free education within the state as a primary school or as a school child. Um, in the absence of this legislation that you talk about, David, the right to access to education, I mean, are we potentially having to look now at perhaps a variety of different types or kinds of schools? Is that something that might emerge? Because Yeah, I think that's, that's quite possible because not only does the, the Constitution say you, you have a right to education, but it also suggests the state should support, you know, financially and, and in other ways, private educational initiatives that parents might want to set up because they don't agree with some aspect of state education. So if you, let's say, try to do this by way of excluding children from, you know, regular public primary schools, people could try and set up private schools for unvaccinated children and ask the state to support those as well. And that's something that you could see happening. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. So so where we are right now um, in, in May 2019, you could effectively do that. I mean, within the constitution, that's what it says. Yeah, well, you, well, you could set up a, a private educational initiative. The state does support many of them. Uh, it has certain standards that it has to meet, doesn't support every uh, educational initiative you might want to start. But I think that if we tried to do compulsory vaccinations, not as an actually compulsory thing where you legally have to do it, but rather you can't send your children to these schools unless you have uh, uh, had these vaccinations, then it's entirely possible that people will seek to set up uh, a separate school initiative that would accommodate parents who don't want to uh, undergo that process and would seek support from the state, which they, they may well be entitled to. Will the public be in a position to, well, presumably from the legal aspect, the public opinion on this won't necessarily matter. Obviously, Seamus Wolfe, as the Attorney General, will just look at the legalities of, of, of changing the statute book on this. Yes. I mean, what I think does matter is the scale of the problem, because you don't look at legal issues entirely in the abstract. You have to look at the problem that a law is trying to solve, how severe it is, uh, what the effect in the community is. So even though public opinion, what, what individuals on the street may, not, uh, may or may not want, that that won't affect the legal analysis, but the circumstance in the real world will. And the fact that we have uh, an increasing number of these cases, a sort of precipitous rise this year, it looks like, that is something that will be taken into account by the Attorney General. So it's not that the Attorney General is isolated from the real world, but rather that he will try and look past public opinion to get to the, the facts and the harms underneath to try and weigh up the rights in, in this instance. The potential, David, of telling people if this law is passed, if it becomes mandatory that kids will have to be vaccinated to, to attend schools or creches, the potential idea that we might be telling parents you cannot send your child to this school or this creche because they don't have the measles vaccination. Is that something that happens in other countries? Yes, yeah, so uh, I think about 11 European states have some measure to try and ensure compulsory vaccination. The two major ways that that, that is done is either through a law that simply mandates that you do it and you can be subject to punishment if you do not vaccinate your child. That's a very direct and, and perhaps more draconian way of doing it, that you are actually subject to legal punishment if you don't comply. The second way is, is somewhat indirect, which is this this schooling measure, which is perhaps the more common because it's a little bit uh, less uh, draconian. You say that you are entitled to make that choice if you wish, but there's going to be consequences that you cannot 
make your choice have effects for the community at large, which may mean exclusion from creches or schools uh, of certain uh, uh, sorts and in certain places where this risk uh, will create problems for other people. Um, that is something that I believe uh, about 11 European states have done so far, either one of those two measures. And uh, it's something that if this continues to be a problem, I think we'll see more states doing and there may be increasing pressure uh, on the government here to do something. But the Constitution may, depending on the advice of the Attorney General, may act as a bar on that. If there is some ambiguity, if the Attorney General isn't totally sure, because it's a complicated issue, mm. it could go either way, one option we always have is to pass a law on this, but ask that the President refers it to the Supreme Court before it actually comes into force. So the President can ask the Supreme Court, is this constitutional? Before we make anyone follow this law, tell us if it's allowed. And the Supreme Court could give us an answer that this is acceptable or unacceptable before anyone becomes subject to the law. So that would be a way of finding out for sure, making sure we haven't gone too far in invading the rights of parents or the educational rights of children. But if we did think this was something we had to do. We're talking the legality of all of this at the moment, but the Health Minister, Simon Harris, has asked all of the TDs to basically, you know, outline what their position is on this issue. He's also sought the advice of the Attorney General, Seamus Wolfe. In terms of having this examined by the AG, David, how long is this likely to take? I mean, it, it really depends on the urgency with which the, the government uh, puts it forward. The Attorney General can turn around advice very, very quickly indeed, but the Attorney General has to give advice to the government on every legal issue mm. it's facing and every issue the departments that the government works with are facing. So uh, it really depends. I think given the political urgency that this is is uh, seen to have, I suspect we'll have some word in the Attorney General's advice fairly quickly. The problem perhaps is that we don't get to see the Attorney General's advice uh, most of the time. The government says essentially that we don't reveal it. So we will probably find out the Attorney General says it's constitutional or unconstitutional. But we won't necessarily see his reasons why. We won't get to debate them and, and maybe say, could the Attorney General be wrong in this instance? And that's a real problem because you could have uh, TDs, you know, clamouring for this. You could have legal opinions differing. But if the Attorney General says no, the government's stance is that they can't then pass that law. And so that could become a problem if the AG just hands down word that this is unconstitutional, but others disagree. You could have some political problems there. And presu but presumably it could be challenged or tweaks could be made to have it re-examined. Yes. And so you could try a different uh, approach that perhaps the Attorney General might say some options are off, but other options are possible. And so legal advice is very rarely absolutely clear cut. This is definitely mm. not allowed. You can never do anything like this. It's usually a matter of some legal creativity or uh, perhaps making the measure uh, less draconian, giving other options okay. for education, that might do it. In the event that something like this is referred to the Supreme Court for judgment, presumably that adds a, a lengthier timeline to the, 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 the decision. It would. So the, the Supreme Court has a, a short window, a couple of months to make a determination, but it does add to the length of the legislative process because you can only do that after the law has been passed. The president has to make a decision within a week. Does it go to the Supreme Court? Then the Supreme Court has two months to, to decide if it's constitutional or not. So it would add a delay, although not a, a massive one, to getting the, the bill enacted. OK, we'll have to await the Attorney General Seamus Wolfe's advice on all of this. But thanks so much for explaining that to us today. Uh, assistant Professor at Law, uh, Assistant Professor, excuse me, of Law Trinity College Dublin. David Kenny, my thanks to you for joining us today. Thank you. Between the lines on News Talk.
You're welcome back to the final part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We've been discussing calls for mandatory vaccinations and all of the issues involved. My thanks to broadcaster and Dr. Kira Kelly and also law lecturer David Kenny for joining us here on the programme earlier. We're now joined by Kevin Kelleher, who's the director of the Health Protection Surveillance Centre. Kevin, my thanks to you for joining us in studio. Good afternoon. Kevin, talk to us about the current vaccination system in Ireland. How does it work? Uh, we have a system that is not unlike most of what happens in Europe and other uh, Western uh, countries, is we have a system that has vaccinations that are given in the first 15 months of life, which we call the Primary Childhood Immunisation Programme. Then we give some further vaccines when children are in school, in junior infants here in Ireland, and in the first year of secondary school. Now, some of those that we give in school are the same as we gave in the first year of life, and then some, primarily the health, the HPV vaccine, is something different. So the immunisation often means that you have to give more than one dose of a vaccine to get the fullest effect of it, and therefore that's what we do, both during the first year, 15 months of life, and then again during school. When we rolled out the immunisation or the vaccination programme, it's a free programme to every it, child in Ireland? It, it, the, both programmes, both what we do in, uh, in the first 15 months of life and in school, is totally free. There's no fees and it's all, everything's provided free to the, child, to the parents of the child. In terms of how and why that was brought in, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, that? That's, it's, it's very much part of the healthcare system we have as a country, but which is a reflection of what all of Europe has. All of Europe has had, for the last 100, 120 years, healthcare systems that try to give explicit healthcare and support to children to help make them as healthy as possible for their education and their adult life. And as we've gone through the last century or more, immunisation has become more and more important as we've got more vaccines and we're able to do more as a consequence. And that has actually escalated in the last 20 or so years. So there's more vaccines have been added. So now we are vaccinating by the time a child finishes secondary school, they will have been vaccinated against 14, 15 diseases. So it, and you know, that's just shit. Mm. Whereas when I was a bairn, which is a long time ago, in the 50s, I was only really vaccinated against two diseases, TB and smallpox. So it's a big change since those. Days. And just when you mentioned smallpox, I suppose for, you know, as long as vaccinations have been around, there's always been concern and opposition to them. And particularly actually with the smallpox. Well, smallpox was the, the first time. vaccination. Uh, well, it, was vac- it, was, it was slightly different back in the days it started over mm. 200 years ago. Yes, you're quite right. Ever since we've had uh, vaccination, we've had opposition. And I actually just read an article that was published over uh, 10 years ago now that actually looked back at what was the opposition when smallpox was first introduced in the end of the 1700s, early 1800s, and what's happening now. And it's virtually the same thing. The same arguments, okay, tinted by the fact that that was 200 years ago now and today, but it's basically the same arguments are used about it. Our vaccination rates, Kevin, here in Ireland have been quite high, I suppose, really, in, 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 in over the last number of years in terms of the um, uptake by members of the public for their children yeah. to have to, to, to complete vaccination or immunisation programmes. Why do you think the vaccination rates have fallen slightly in more recent years? Why do you think that is? Well, 
we have had in the last 30, 40 years, and it's, it's important to talk about that length of time because it, it feeds into this. 30 or more years ago, there was a difficulty with the original pertussis whooping cough vaccine, and that caused a dip in vaccination rates. The vaccine changed and people got more aware of it and it increased again. We then had the big scare about vaccines was in the end of the 1990s, early part of the last decade, when we had the uh, totally erroneous link between the MMR vaccine and autism by the totally discredited Dr. Wakeman and Wakefield. And that is there. And the problem now is because of our use of social media, those stories remain. And you go in, you find them very easily. And that's the thing that influences a lot of people as a consequence. Okay. It took us, our rate for MMR dropped to somewhere in the low 70s and even down into the 50s in certain parts of the country. And it's only in the last two or three years we've got it back up to over 90%. Okay. Talk to us about, I suppose, some of the main things that we vaccinate against have now become, if you like, issues again in terms of the rise in the cases of measles, incidents of mumps. And these are these are actual cases yeah. that are being reported in Ireland. The interesting thing about measles, particularly at the moment, is that actually we are at a point where we're getting quite close to measles being eliminated, eradicated from this country. In technical terms, the WHO has said that we have now stopped endemic measles in Ireland, which means that measles was just routinely around in the country. We've stopped that. Our immunisation processes over the last 20 years has stopped that. And measles is, is uncommon here. The difficulty is that's not so in the whole of the world, and therefore you get cases brought in that can expose. And then we've also got pockets, both pockets specifically of certain groups in the country where the vaccination rates, people just don't vaccinate. And then we've got groups of people who are left over from being in, not being vaccinated from the 90s and on onwards. So there's quite a group of people who are not vaccinated up to about the age of 20, 30, 35 as that consequence. So they are able to be exposed to the measles and get the disease as a consequence. And that's a big number. Mm. That is probably somewhere around 15, 20% of the population. Kira, so it's a big number. Yeah, Kira Kelly was talking to us earlier about, I suppose, the actual potential impact or knock, knock-on effect that can have in, in terms of the, um, I suppose, how the difficulties some of these various different kind of diseases can actually pose. Talk to us about the impact of young on young children who perhaps come in contact with somebody with measles, with mumps? Measles is particularly, is the most infectious disease, okay? it If you're in a room with 30, 40 people, half of them can be infected if you've got measles. It's very infectious. It's an unpleasant disease. One in 10 people, I'm sure Kira is saying this, one in 10 people with measles are likely to be admitted to hospital. One in a hundred people with measles are likely to end up on an ICU, being ventilated, being looked after as a consequence. And the death rate is somewhere around one in a thousand. And there are some very unpleasant sequelae. So it, lots of these infectious diseases are still very major problems to us all. Which is the biggest outbreak we're facing, Kevin, at the moment? Uh, well, t in numerical terms, it's mumps. 
the numbers of mumps are really quite high. And just talk to us about some of those statistics, maybe. Well, to well paint we've the got picture. we've got at the moment we're up into the hundreds, four five hundred cases of measles uh, sort of mumps at the moment. Our measles here in case Ireland. here in Ireland since the start of the year, we've got an outbreak that spread from just before Christmas to now. Okay, what's the impact of that? It's not as much as measles would be. Okay, it's it's it is, however, a bigger impact the older you are if you get it. So if somebody of my age was to get mumps, it's it's like to cause more of a problem than if a younger person gets. I've I've had mumps when I was a kid, but it, it's of that nature. Measles, however can affect anybody particularly and clearly it it has a biggest impact on the babies because no child before the age of one has mm. measles vaccine therefore they are very susceptible and they can get okay. really bad disease mumps is the biggest issue we're facing at the moment why are people not getting the vaccination well it's the same vaccine it's the same vaccine it's okay same. And, and again it's, it's, it's called mmr oh, yeah, that's of course, measles it's mumps brought back into, in, into it's, it's the same vaccine okay it's it, the mumps is just numerically but Actually, in real, from my perspective, measles is the big problem because it causes much more disease and more like to cause severe disease for some people. But it's the same thing. It is a consequence of the same issue, i.e. there are not enough people have had the vaccine to create what's called herd immunity to mm. prevent it being spread. Okay. The second issue is there's a slight difference in the effectiveness over time of the different vaccines. So mumps actually fades away more quickly in its effectiveness than measles does. So actually that's another issue that we're having to face into now so as well. So in the numerical terms, you talk about the rise in the number of cases of mumps being reported here in Ireland. What's the physical impact on somebody of that? Like, How well, would you know the, if you have it? You, you swell, you're ill. You're not doing very well. You have swellings here. It's called mumps. It's it's your parotid the side gland of your face. at the side of your face, and you feel really unwell, and you've got glands and everything. It's a really generalised viral illness that knocks you out for a week, ten days. Okay, measles is the same. It's a it's a viral illness that knocks you out with the spots and things for a week, ten days. I suppose very specifically in Dublin, there were real pockets of where mumps became is been reported as quite a big issue, specifically yes. in parts of Dublin city centre. Well. Over the last decade, we have repeatedly seen outbreaks of mumps in north inner city. Uh, my office is actually in Gardner Street, and that's the big area in and around there where we have witnessed a number of outbreaks over the last decade. And that's a consequence of over the years that the uptake rates there were generally only in the 80%. They've actually, in the last couple of uh, six months or so, gone up over 90% again. And that is very, very good. But we had had a lot. So you've got there. And then equally, it's an area where there's a lot of movement. Families move around a lot. And you've got a lot of people coming in from other parts of Europe or other parts of the world where measles is far more prevalent and more likely to do it. We've witnessed that. The outbreak in New York that everybody's been mm. talking about was as a consequence of somebody from visiting New York, that community, from abroad. You know, it, the case was brought in and they just didn't have the vaccine as a community. Therefore, they were totally exposed. It's similar for us. People, we go on holiday to Eastern Europe. There's been a massive outbreak of uh, measles in Romania and likewise in Poland and smaller but significant sized ones in France and Italy. So people go on holiday here. I'm not sure if you understood that in one of the major French ski resorts just after Mm -hmm. In the new year, there was a big outbreak of measles. 
people go and then people come back, you know, so that's exposed. We now know that there's a outbreak going on to a degree, in a sense, across the whole of Europe because there were some people, a person with measles in Schiphol Airport for four or five hours and he affected people who were in the airport. Yeah, so at what that's point, how it spreads. Okay, at what point, Kevin, is it too late to get the vaccine or is it ever too late? No, it, it up until you can actually, the vaccine can even still work just around the time that you might be infected, okay? It wouldn't be perfect, but it can do. Most vaccines take 10 days to a fortnight to be fully affected. So if you had it today and you'd never had it before, around the 10th, 15th of this month, you'd be immune. Start your so you, even process. if you've had mumps, you can still then get the vaccination well, to prevent for, again? In a short period of time. But it takes normally takes 10 to 14 days to have it. And, and mumps is one of the ones, so measles mumps is one of the ones where you need the two doses. The young children, particularly pre their first birthday, are particularly exposed to, to some of these cases. The Health Minister, Simon Harris, we were talking to David Kenny, the yeah. legal um, uh, legal lecturer, a few moments ago as well, Kevin, about the um, the constitutionality of making vaccines mandatory for kids if they want to go to public schools and creches across Ireland. What's your view on that? I have a number of uh, issues and not necessarily beliefs around it. Not all are the same. Some conflict with each other because I think there are different things. A lot, and I've said this in things, actually depends upon how, what the culture is of a country and therefore how willing they are to accept certain things. Certain countries in Europe are more willing to accept sort of mandatory in inverted commas issues than other countries because mm-hmm. of the ethos of the country. The Scandinavian countries are more willing to accept that Eastern Europe has been more willing to accept that historically uh, for lots of different reasons. So it's of that nature. On the whole, we have taken the position, and I would have said that we have shown that we can do it, is that with the effort, we can get our rates up without mandation at the moment. So you don't think it's a good idea? I'm not saying I don't think it's a good idea. I think you can get to that point. I think you have to have a much greater debate about it to make sure that if it was introduced, there wasn't an uproar an outright opposition that would cause more of a problem as a consequence. You could actually introduce it and the perverse effect would be it would cause more of a problem as a consequence because there'd be such a move against it. So you need to be careful about how you do it and how you introduce it. I have to say I am actually more in favour of, uh, of, in inverted commas, mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers. So I certainly believe every member of staff who works in a hospital and works in certain areas like ICU or oncology wards should show that they have been vaccinated or immune to measles or chickenpox or things of that nature. Flu vaccine? Yes, as well. I think. So you think all uh, of the healthcare professionals... Well, well, I, I think certainly at the very least in the areas I've talked about, but more generally, I think that could be said as well. Okay. I want to ask you a little bit more about this idea, the mandatory vaccination, because some people that we've been talking to and research for today mm. will share some of the concerns that you've raised, Kevin, I suppose, or, you know, your apprehension perhaps with the idea of making something mandatory in a democratic country, um, in a democratic process where people feel, well, if I'm going to be told to do something, I'm now not going to do it. And people have their own concerns that we talked about a little bit earlier as well with the idea of vaccinations. 
is it a very reactionary move by the health minister to no? To I do wouldn't this? say that. I actually think that on the I can equally argue on the other side that I th- I can see the value. Okay, I certainly think we're at the uh, often people get the thing is it's wrong to impose vaccination on somebody who hasn't um, people who haven't been vaccinated forcing them to do it. But you equally is the other side of the argument. Is it right to expose a group of people, and particularly those who can't have the vaccine, i.e. babies, to these diseases as a consequence of people not being vaccinated? So that side of the argument is is there. And I think that debate needs to be had around this sort of thing. That's one of the things that's... So all I really want to say is I think we need to have a proper debate. So if it happens... People know why it's happening and are going to accept it more than it just being imposed without that debate. Do you think are we lacking that level of conversation at the moment? Uh, I think it's it's got, clearly it's it's happening, but I'm not quite sure how much it happens on the you know the number eleven bus or whatever. It I I clearly am involved yeah, of because course. of my role yeah, yeah. and things of that nature. But how much else is it involved? And of course, I'm now in my sixties, so it's not. I'm not talking about my children anymore around this sort of issue, you know. But that's what I'm saying. So it is there. It's an interesting debate, but don't, don't forget how long it took to introduce compulsory seatbelts. You know, it was a long, hard road to get so to you, that point. You're, am I taking from you, don't rush into this? You have got to get the, the place, the country, the people in a position where they see the value more more than not. As opposed to forcing it upon them yes. quickly. Yes. I think as the director of the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, a lot of people would be very interested, Kevin, in what you have to say about this. And we talked a little bit earlier today, I suppose, about the, the constitutionality of the, the, the possibility of introducing or making something like this actually compulsory and the difficulties there may be to that. Um, what would your advice... Well, my advice is that there are some laws in Ireland already that give powers not unsimilar to this that allow us to act in the to protect the public's health in a way some people would find unpleasant and they might even say unconstitutional. Well, can you expand though, on that? Well, I have the power and my colleagues like myself have the power to make sh- restrict people from moving around if they have an infectious disease. We can say you must stay in X place and they have to stay. And that's in the law. It's actually been gone to the High Court and been found to be legal. So those powers do exist and things of that nature. And on the whole, in Western democracies, the legal system does actually support public health action in those sort of circumstances. It's not uncommon. Uh, Finland has just passed a law in the last five years that actually allows the minister, uh, like Minister Harris, to do what he's talking about. There is a law there now that says the minister can, in circumstances, do what our minister is talking about. So you mean if somebody is diagnosed with a case of measles or mumps that they're told they have to stay in quarantine? No, 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 that exists already if we wish to do it. They've introduced the law that allows mandatory vaccination. Well, that's something that, of course, our own Attorney General, Seamus yeah. Wolfe, is examining sure. at, at the moment, just for people listening to us today. Um, what's your advice to members of the public? Yeah, if you're not vaccinated or your children aren't vaccinated, get them vaccinated. And I really particularly want people 
to think about that actively. If their children aren't vaccinated and they're about to go on holiday to Europe, they're going on holiday to Europe, or they're going to go to one of the, you know, the, the classic language camps, the Gale Talk areas, this in our here at the moment, because they are going to be those. We've often had outbreaks of measles in those camps over the years, because people have turned up not vaccinated. So people should be vaccinated when they go to those things. It's about protecting their own children and protecting the other children that they're getting involved with. We talked a few moments ago about the was the fact we're heading into the summer period. You've mentioned yeah. the various different kind of camps. That's something that's really going to crop up now over the summer months when children yes. are obviously exposed to various different activities. Um, where can people do this? I mean, I presume it's just in their own local GP. Well, the it? GP will... Uh, it, the measles vaccine is generally free for any child up to the age of 10. And if there is an outbreak in the area involved in, the measles vaccine would be free. But the actual fee would not be very great by most GPs, wouldn't charge very much for giving actually if you have to have it, you know, in whatever the circumstance is. So it's there. So it is generally free and, you know, you can get it done quite easily and quite quickly. Every GP practice has a supply of the vaccine. When you talk about that kind of general conversation that you say, Kevin, you think needs to be had really before going down the route of mandatory, you know, compulsory vaccination for kids. What about, a, I suppose, a better advertising campaign or not advertising, but, but communications campaign to... I, I, I don't disagree. And that's one of the things uh, we're seriously looking at at the moment. We've got a new member of staff, a very senior member of staff just joined us, a new post. And she will be, is her first job, she starts in June. Her first job is to take on board how we should look and change our campaigns as a consequence of what's been happening over the last six months a year. When you look at the impact, for instance, of road fatalities and smoking... We were looking at all those different models. And it is interesting that, you know, over time, you know, in some parts of the healthcare system, people say horror ads and shock tactics don't work, and yet they clearly work in road safety. You know, so do we think of those same things? Uh, We were extremely fortunate... I think for the last 18 months that we had Laura Brennan working with us around the HPV, Mm. what we would, if it was at all possible, and we are searching, if we could get some uh, parents who would be willing to talk to us about why they would get their babies vaccinated and uh, of those circumstances, it would be really, that's a powerful thing. Those stories are the powerful things. I worked in West Bromwich in... uh, England 30 years ago and we had a not dissimilar problem with measles at that time and we were it became a public national thing we had a very large outbreak and we got approached by Roald Dahl because his daughter had got one of the very severe complications of measles and was left in a coma basically very severely Mm. and Roald Dahl came to West Bromwich for a day promoted the vaccine and actually ended up leaving us with a letter that was sent to every kid on their first birthday signed by Roald Dahl telling them to get the vaccine and that letter still exists you know and it, and it was a great thing you know that made a big difference and that's the yeah. same thing we and need something people like stories as opposed so to So are somebody, you looking for anyone if anyone's well, listening if, to if, if anyone's listening, similar... they could come to us okay. we'd be very very 
please. We'll leave it there for the moment. My thanks to the Director of the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, uh, Kevin Kelleher, for joining us here on Between the Lines today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. My thanks to all of our panellists, Kevin Kelleher, David Kenny, and also Kira Kelly. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website or also on iTunes or any other podcast player. My thanks to the production team, Elaine Power and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Tuesday from 6 and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.